0: Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast. Hello, you beautiful Constantine's you. I haven't trotted that term out in a while. I'm going to get right on to the latest episode. But first, I want you to download the free app Vodacast and listen to this episode there. Vodacast is a podcast player like you already listened through, but with deeper digital stories. For example, if you listen to this story through Vodacast, you can immerse yourself in bonus content, including articles and images relevant to the stories you're listening to. As you listen on Vodacast, the bonus content appears at the appropriate time as you listen. I'm going to be mentioning some of the things you can see on Vodacast throughout this episode, so download now to make sure you don't miss out. Just click on the link in the show notes or search for Vodacast on the App Store or Google Play hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. It was late May, 1741, and George Anson was facing one of the most difficult choices of his life. The story of that choice begins several years earlier. Actually, it begins several millennia earlier, but let's hold on to that until the end of the cold open. The story of that choice begins several years earlier, in 1731, when Robert Jenkins got his ear cut off. Jenkins was the captain of a merchant brig named the HMS Rebecca. He was working in the West Indies as a, well, as a smuggler. As we talked about back in the episode Perpetuum Mobile, legitimate trade between Britain and the West Indies was limited to the South Sea Company, which itself was limited to one ship, which rarely ever sailed. But that was legitimate trade. Illegitimate trade, on the other hand, was booming, and Robert Jenkins was a part of it. In April of 1731, the Rebecca was boarded by La Isabella, a Spanish privateer, on account of that smuggling, and Jenkins' ear was cut off as a warning. This was not really a big deal at the time. But seven years later, a bunch of British partisans were looking for an excuse to go to war with Spain, mostly to improve the position of said South Sea Company, and brought forth the dis-eared Robert Jenkins. This drove popular sentiment against Spain, and Parliament followed. Finally, so did Prime Minister Robert Walpole, who saw a fight with the Spanish as the only way to stave off being removed from power. And so, the War of Jenkins' Ear began on October 22nd, 1739. The first battle of the war was a dismal failure for the British, as was the third, the fourth, and the fifth. But the second, the Battle of Porto Bello, was a triumph. And, never a people to be swayed by ratios, the English went buck wild about it. Rule Britannia one of the many songs that you're not entirely certain isn't the British National Anthem, was written as a celebration of Portobello. King George II gave out more medals for Portobello than any other battle in the whole 18th century, and both the Edinburgh suburb of Figate Muir, oh, you Scots are gonna love my pronunciation to that, I'll bet you, and the London Street of Greens Lane were renamed in Portobello's honor. All of this enthusiasm came from the fact that the British had managed to march on Portobello in less than 24 hours. And that encouraged not only the writing of songs, the giving of medals, and the renaming of places, it also encouraged more battles. Most of which the English lost, but most importantly, for our purposes, it encouraged the Navy to send George Anson on one of the most ill-conceived missions in naval history. Since England had just won literally a single battle on the east coast of the Spanish Main, they figured they might as well send Anson all the way around South America to capture Colau, the port city that supplied Lima. Hey, while they were at it, why not capture Lima too? And any other Spanish settlements or ships they happened to run across. To do this, Anson was given a total of eight ships, two of them merchant supply vessels, and a grand total of 500 soldiers if that sounds insufficient just you wait because the 500 soldiers in question were to be taken from among the sick and injured recovering at chelsea hospital when they heard about the plan about half of those soldiers abandoned duty that left 259 men the ones who weren't well enough to run to be carried on board in stretchers To make up for the missing, 241 fresh marine recruits, who had received approximately zero trading, were also brought on. What he lacked in troops, Anson made up for in supplies. Oh, that makes it sound like a good thing, but no. Since the point of the War of Jenkins' Ear was to improve English trade in South America, Anson's expedition was loaded down with goods to sell, so many that the decks of his gunships were piled high with them. When the 500 soldiers and 1,300-odd sailors finally shoved off after a month's-long delay, the Spanish were already aware of their mission, and a gang of warships were dispatched to intercept them. After roughly a month at sea, Anson reached Madeira, but learned that the Spanish were lying in wait for them on the western side of the island, so they had to hurry along and get back to sea without rest or proper resupply. 18th century sailing always sucked, but it sucked especially hard for Anson's expedition. A month after they fled Madeira, their supplies were rotting, one of their ships had turned back for England, and the holds were ripe with illness. Half of the quote-unquote soldiers had started off bedridden, and things only went downhill from there. With all the supplies on deck, those who could have gone above had no space to, and the sailors had so little room to maneuver that non-essential personnel were ordered to stay below. The ships were riding so low in the water that the gun ports had to be kept closed, for fear it would rush in. That meant that there was no air below decks, where the hundreds of men were being held. Midway across the Atlantic, typhus and dysentery broke out. On December 21st, Anson's ships reached the island of Santa Catarina, off the southern Brazilian coast, and Anson ordered the sick to be brought ashore to mend, while the ships were repaired and fumigated. Being in fresh air and out of the putrid holds helped decrease the typhus and dysentery, which were replaced by mosquito-borne malaria. Twenty-eight men died before they could get underway again, and more men were sick from their recuperation than had been when they got off. When they set sail again, on January 18, 1741, the plan was to make it around Cape Horn, the southern tip of South America, and come up the other side towards Callao and Lima, which they were going to conquer somehow. But the weather was terrible. A near-endless series of storms that slowed progress, broke ships, and killed more men as they slowly beat their way around the Horn. It wasn't until April that Anson's navigators determined they had gotten around the southern end of the continent. Unfortunately, his navigators were wrong, and after a couple of days sailing north, the lead ship, HMS Anna, sighted land in the mist in front of them and fired cannons to warn the rest of the fleet away it took almost another two months for anson's expedition to get around patagonia well the part of the expedition that did get around patagonia at least two of the ships the 50-gun hms Severn and the 40-gun hms pearl weren't up for the journey and had to turn back for england and the 24-gun hms wager wrecked on the rocky coast where its surviving crew devolved into drunken mutiny and a disastrous attempt to row back to england five years later Only five out of the wagers' original 300-man crew was left alive. But, back aboard the flagship HMS Centurion, George Anson was facing the tough choice that is the reason we're telling his story. By late May, 1741, his men were dying of another disease. Scurvy. It was imperative that he get them to a safe port before they all kicked the bucket. That safe port was to be the Juan Fernandez Islands, 400 or so miles off the west coast of present-day Chile. Anson's fleet had been sailing north for weeks, and he knew they had to make a hard, 90-degree turn towards the islands. The question was, in which direction? He and his navigators knew how far north they were, they were at the right latitude to hit the islands, but they weren't sure how far west they were. Were they between Juan Fernandez and Chile, or had they already gone past Juan Fernandez? They couldn't tell. If Anson commanded them to turn the wrong direction, they'd be stuck at sea even longer, and more of his men would die of scurvy. They might all be lost forever. He might as well have flipped a coin. Heads, we go west. Tails, we go east. Whatever means he used, he decided on east, and so east it was. The centurion sailed that way for days, until they finally sighted land. Not Juan Fernandez, but the unapproachable rocky cliffs of western Chile. He had chosen poorly. When George Anson had decided to turn east... Juan Fernandez had been less than a day's journey west. But now it took another week and a half for the Centurion to retrace its path. By the time they reached safe harbor, half the crew was dead from scurvy. You can read about the rest of his voyage via the Vodacast app right now. Now let's get something straight. George Anson wasn't an idiot. He wasn't incompetent. He was a good sailor. By the time he was mulling over which way to send the centurion, he'd distinguished himself several times over. He hadn't just lost track of how far west he was. He had never known in the first place. And neither did anyone else. It took ten years and approximately 280 billion inflation-adjusted dollars to send the first human beings to the moon. Roughly the same amount of time was spent laying a transatlantic telegraph cable that wouldn't break within weeks, and the Suez Canal was completed in just a little over a decade for the low, low cost of half a billion francs and roughly 120,000 lives. When the Wright brothers took flight in 1903, it was the culmination of a dream that stretched back through all human history, but the actual useful pursuit of flying was just 50 or so years old. Over the course of human history, we have done a lot of really difficult things. We eradicated polio. We built the Great Wall of China. We made Cheetos. Flamin' hot. But by almost any criteria you can think up, amount of time spent, effort expended, lives sacrificed, the hardest thing we've ever done is answering the question George Anson faced in May of 1741. Where are we? This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode Long Story Short. Let's imagine the problem together. Say you and I found ourselves lost without our phones, without GPS. No road signs or signs of civilization, no tools of any kind. And suppose I then gave you a challenge, because I'm that kind of asshole. I could get us back home again, but only if you could tell me exactly where we were in the world. I'll admit, if the shoe was on the other foot and you were the one asking me, we'd be screwed. Absolutely and 100% boned. But I'm going to be generous and assume you were paying a lot more attention in geography class than I was. So, you're going to get clever. It's going to take some time and some work, but hey, our lives are at stake here, right? So, the first thing you need to do is to determine which way is north, which you can do by locating the North Star, provided we're in the Northern Hemisphere. If we're in the Southern Hemisphere, well, then we're boned, as described QV. So let's give ourselves a fighting chance and assume we're in the Northern Hemisphere and you're able to find the North Star. If you're listening on the Vodacast app, you've got some instructions on how to find the North Star available to you right now. Congratulations! Now you know which way is north. The next thing you need to know is what time is solar noon, when the sun is at its highest point in the sky above you. This is pretty simple. Draw a line going straight north-south and plop a stick straight up and down at the southern end of the line. Now, when the stick's shadow crosses that line, it's solar noon. It's at that moment that you need a way to determine the angle between your position, the sun, and the horizon. There are a lot of ways you can do this, theoretically. Probably the simplest one, provided we're on land, and boy howdy, that's a big caveat, is by building a quadrant. Think of a quadrant as sort of a celestial protractor, which will help you find the angle at which the sun is shining on you. Since the sun is directly over the equator at noon, figuring out how high it is in the sky where you are will give you a direct way to determine how far north of the equator we are. Or south, but then you can't find the North Star, so you can't point your quadrant in the right direction, so boned. Oh, I see some smarties with their hands up! Yes, you're right! The sun is only directly above the equator at noon during an equinox. If you're quick to your podcasts and are listening to this story right away as soon as it drops, then congratulations, it is the fall equinox, and you have until noon to get your quadrant ready for an accurate reading. If you miss it, then you got six months to set up for the spring equinox. If it's not September 21st or March 21st, then you're going to have to do some math to figure out the solar declination. The Earth wobbles between the equinoxes, so if you're taking your measurements during the winter solstice, on December 21st, you're going to have to subtract 23.45 degrees from your reading. If it's the summer solstice, June 21st, you'll have to do the opposite. And anywhere between a solstice and an equinox... uh look, I know it's complicated, that's my point. But let's say you know what day it is, you know which way is north, you know when solar noon is, and you know how to build and use a quadrant. With all of that, you're finally ready to tell me how far north of the equator we are. Fantastic, I say. Very impressive. Not exactly what I asked, though, is it? Because there are a whole lot of places that share the same latitude. Right now, I'm at about 41.9 degrees north. That could mean I'm in Barcelona, or Istanbul, or Rome, or Shenyang. As it happens... I'm in Chicago, but even that doesn't narrow it down very far. I could be anywhere from Lake Michigan to O'Hare. So, knowing our latitude isn't at all the same thing as knowing where we are. No, if you want me to get us home, you're going to have to work out how far east or west we are. You, oh clever child, are going to have to figure out our longitude. At which point we are, you guessed it, boned. Figuring out our latitude might sound complicated, but in the grand scheme of things, it's really quite simple. Sure, you have to know a few things, but they're things you can know, things you can work out, and people did, and do. Sometime before 330 BC, a Greek merchant named Pythias became the first Mediterranean to reach Britain, the first to describe the Arctic and the Midnight Sun. His journey birthed a bunch of myths that people believed for thousands of years to come, like the island of Thule, It's also the earliest known time that a traveler calculated their latitude. For emphasis, the first known time. There's very little reason to think that Pythias was the first Greek to figure out latitude, and just as little reason to imagine the Greeks were the first to work it out. Sure, if you plopped me, personally, out in the wilderness, I would have a hard time working out my latitude but I'm not confident I could get a fire going either, so I'm probably not a great barometer for how difficult stuff is. My point is, even though latitude might seem complicated to you, or me, or especially me, it's really pretty easy. Most of the peoples of the world for most of the last 2,000 years could do it if they really wanted and had any reason to. Longitude? Longitude was an entirely different story, like a whole other league. Going from latitude to longitude is like having your piano teacher bump you from Mary Had a Little Lamb to Flight of the Bumblebee. If you're wondering why, what makes the two so different, I think I can get you there. Picture a map, like the typical Mercator projection map of the world you had in school, the one where Greenland's way too big. Here, I've got one for you on the Vodacast app, now. Now, answer me this. Where is zero degrees north-south? What's the middle of the world? The equator, right? When giving latitude, we express it in terms of how far north or south we are from that line. Easy enough. Now, same question, but for longitude. Where's zero degrees east-west? Well, it's the center of the map, right? It's the line that goes right down the middle. But why is that the middle? The equator is the equator. It's the actual belt of the globe. A perfectly straight line around our imperfectly spheroid planet. It's the axis upon which the world spins, leaving aside that seasonal wobble. Zero degrees north-south is a real, demonstrable line. We couldn't just decide to move it up a few degrees. The equator is the equator. But the east-west zero? The prime meridian? It's nothing. It doesn't describe some line of symmetry or important axis. You could put it anywhere you want it. And people have. The reason we mark the current line as our prime meridian is, well, actually very important to this story way down the line. But just know that it was an entirely human decision. If every human being died tomorrow, the equator would still exist. The prime meridian would be gone. To work out your latitude, you need a way to figure out where the sun is and where the equator is. Then you're basically solving for the missing angle. For longitude, there is no equivalent to the equator. But that's not to say longitude was hopeless. Around the same time that Pythias was sailing to Britain, possibly at the same time, actually, the Macedonian army was fighting King Darius III at the Battle of Gaugamela. Despite being greatly outnumbered, Macedonia defeated Darius, spelling the beginning of the end of the Achaemenid Empire, and the cementing of the Macedonian leader Alexander as pretty good. Alexander the pretty good. Alexander the swell. Alexander the big. There's got to be a word for this guy. According to Plutarch, eleven days before the battle, Alexander and his army had crossed the Tigris River. This was a feat, too, and Darius's generals had believed the Roaring River to be impassable. But Alexander managed to ford it, and just as he did, there was a sign. A lunar eclipse. To the Persians, this was probably a very bad omen, a sign that Darius would soon fall, as indeed he did. Maybe Alexander saw it the same way, as evidence of his very goodness, his wow cool, Alexander wow cool. No, that's not it. Whatever the eclipse meant to Darius and Alexander, we can confidently say it meant something. An eclipse in 331 BC was a big deal. We can also say, with nearly as much confidence, that it meant something different to Ptolemy. Now, Ptolemy wasn't around for Alexander's eclipse, commonly known as the Arbella Eclipse. Ptolemy wasn't born until 431 years later, in 100 AD, but Ptolemy knew about the Arbella Eclipse, because people who were around wrote about it. Ptolemy had access to two records of the Arbella Eclipse, one taken from Arbella, modern-day Erbil in Kurdish Iraq, and the other from Carthage, now Tunis. Two hundred-some years before Ptolemy was born, and two hundred-some years after Alexander's victory over Darius, Hipparchus of Nicaea, founder of trigonometry, had theorized that one could determine the difference in longitude in two places if one knew the precise time at which they experienced the same lunar eclipse, like Arbella and Carthage. Ptolemy's two witnesses would have seen the eclipse at the same moment, but not at the same time. Today, we have standardized time zones, for reasons that might deserve an episode of their own. So if I look up from Chicago into the sky to see the beginning of a lunar eclipse, and my friend Tim does the same in New York, we'll be seeing it at the same moment. But the time for me will be an hour earlier. Just like how we watch James Corden every night on the phone together. (laughs) I hate James Corden so much. (sighs) Where was I? But in 331 BC, there was no standard time. All time was local, determined by when the sun was directly above high noon. And high noon drags from east to west at a predictable rate. The Earth rotates a full 360 degrees every 24 hours, so every hour it turns 15 degrees. Ptolemy worked out that the observer at Arbella saw the eclipse begin about three hours earlier, in local time, than the observer at Carthage, and so estimated the difference in longitude between the two cities to be about 45 degrees. Ta-da! He then used this measurement to draw a map of the Mediterranean, the first one ever made to use a proper projection, with curved lines of longitude. For the first time, not just in recorded history, the first time ever, Someone had worked out the longitudinal difference between two different locations. Except that, as it turns out, the astronomer at Arbella, he got his time wrong. By about an hour. Thanks to that, and a large number of other factors, Ptolemy's map was massively incorrect. His Mediterranean was stretched roughly 50% longer than the real thing. And that mistake will probably come up again, and already has come up before, since it was Ptolemy's version of the Earth that led Christopher Columbus to think the world was much smaller than it is, and thus that he could go around the back of it to get to Asia. The Arbella Eclipse had failed to unveil the secret of longitude, but in theory, the method was sound. A similar one is described in the Surya Siddhanta, a book of astronomy written in Sanskrit somewhere around 400 AD. It's possible that Indian astronomers arrived at this method from Ptolemy, or else someone lost to history, possibly named Lata, worked it out independently. Either way, the astronomers of the Muslim Golden Age had access to both Ptolemy and the Surya Siddhanta. And in 901, Al-Battani became the first person we can say for sure accurately used the eclipse method, nailing the longitudinal difference between Raqqa in present-day Syria and Antakya, also known as Antioch, depending on who was sieging it and who was being sieged at any particular moment in southern Turkey. Within a hundred years, Abureyan Al-Burani, one of the real heavyweight geniuses of the Islamic Golden Age, had worked out an alternative way to find longitude. He figured out that if you knew the distance between two points as the crow flies, as well as the precise latitude of those points, and the correct size of the Earth, looking at you, Ptolemy, then you could just plug that info in, solve for x, and ta-da, longitude. This only worked, though, if you had a good way of working out the actual straight-line distance between two places, which was a whole other problem. Al-Biruni managed to key the difference in longitude between Ghazni and Baghdad by asking two travelers who had taken different roads between the cities how long they thought their journeys were and then averaging the two estimates. By coincidence, this worked, and Al-Biruni was able to figure the meridian distance between the two cities to within one degree. He then did a similar trick between Baghdad and Alexandria, but again, his distance guesstimates were correct by pure luck. The only way Al system could reliably work is if you could travel a straight line between the two places you were comparing and properly gauge that distance. Functionally, the only way you could hope to cut such a straight path would be by traveling over sea. But that was hardly a solution. In fact, it was the real bulk of the problem. After Al Batani and Al Biruni, the Muslim world got really, really good at figuring out where places were. The greatest astronomer of the age was Al Zarqali, who was born in 1029 in Toledo, Spain, which at the time was, well, not Spain. Al Zarqali read Ptolemy and figured out that he'd made the Mediterranean too big. He fixed it and made the first accurate map of the area and accompanied that map with a book of astronomical tables that accurately predicted the position of the sun and planets. Together, these references were enough information so that when a lunar eclipse hit on September 12th, 1178, people were ready and able to determine a web of longitudes, from Toledo, Spain, to Marseille, France, to Tyre, Lebanon, to Hereford, England, and so on, and so on, and so on. Most of Europe, Asia, and North Africa now had a reliable way to determine longitude, provided you didn't need that longitude to be too precise. And provided you could wait for a lunar eclipse. Oh, and provided you were at a fixed point. And provided you were on land. In other words, it was useless. And nothing about that would change for several hundred years. The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp assesses your needs to match you with your own licensed professional therapist, allowing you to start communicating in under 48 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime and receive timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional counseling in a safe, private, convenient online environment. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. They have licensed professional counselors specializing in depression, trauma, relationships, grief, and much more. And since they're available worldwide, you can find the particular expertise you need online without limiting yourself to the counselors located near you. Anything you share is confidential. BetterHelp is convenient, professional, and affordable. In fact... So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash the constant. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot the constant. And by University of California, Irvine, Division of Continuing Education. Today's economy is highly competitive, and UCI-DCE can prepare you to stand out. According to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, continuing education correlates to higher income. It opens doors to networking opportunities, better job opportunities, and career progression. And aside from that, enrolling with UCI can feed your curiosity, your love of learning, and the delight of knowledge that makes life just better. UCI-DCE has been serving lifelong learning and skill development needs for the local, regional, and global community for over 50 years. They offer over 80 career-focused programs in business, leadership, tech, education, engineering, health sciences, law, finance, and more. Some programs can even prepare individuals to sit for industry certifications or provide continuing education credit towards recertification. Courses are offered on a quarterly basis and no formal application is required to enroll. Learn from instructors who are practicing professionals with extensive relevant industry experience and gain practical skills that can be applied immediately on the job. At UCI DCE, enrollment is open to everyone. Go to CE. .uci.edu slash learn now to, well, to learn now. Again, that's ce.uci.edu slash learn now or follow the link in the show notes. Small business owners, startups, freelancers, entrepreneurs, do you know the number one way to avoid unfair bank fees? Step one is close your account. Step two is open a new Novo Free Business Banking Account. Novo is the number one business banking app because it's built from the ground up to be powerfully simple and free business banking that Money Magazine called the best business checking account of 2021. With Novo, there are no minimum balances, no transaction limits, and no hidden fees. Sign up for free in under 10 minutes at banknovo.com theconstant the constant. Then they'll mail you a free Novo debit card and you get free ATM use. Novo makes banking easy and secure. You can manage your account in Novo's customizable web, Android, and iOS apps with built-in profit-first accounting and invoicing. Plus, you can tag each transaction and upload receipts. Novo seamlessly integrates with leading business tools and services like Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks, and more for free. Plus, Novo offers over $5,000 in perks and discounts just for signing up. Get your free business banking account in just 10 minutes at banknovo.com slash the constant. Go to banknovo.com the constant to sign up for free right now and get a free copy of Novo's Small Business Starter Guide. banknovo.com slash the constant. By the end of the 14th century, most of Europe, Asia, and North Africa had roughly worked out the longitudes of their major cities. By eyeballing the times of lunar eclipses, as Ptolemy prescribed, or doing some dirty math on latitude and distances, as biruni suggested, people could make some fairly good guesses about where, say, Paris was in relation to Munich. Most places were mapped to within a degree if not two or three of longitude, a marked improvement over the maps Christians and Muslims had been using before, which were usually taken from Ptolemy's incorrect projections. But there were still a bunch of problems. First of all, one degree of longitude is still a pretty good bit of distance. At the equator, the length between two degrees is almost 70 miles. So if you thought you had the longitude of Madrid worked out to within two degrees, What you really meant is that you'd figured it out within a range of a hundred miles or so. That sounds a lot less impressive, huh? But the bigger issue is that neither of these longitude techniques gets you any closer to telling me where we are in our hypothetical lost-in-the-wilderness scenario. For one, you'd have been dependent on a serendipitous lunar eclipse to have even a chance at nailing down our longitude. But even in the unlikely event that there happened to be one when you needed it, that still didn't tell you anything, unless you also knew what time that lunar eclipse was seen somewhere else. This actually came up a whole lot of times. The earliest notable instance involved everybody's favorite guy, Christopher Columbus. While on his second trip to the Americas, he found himself on Sanoa Island off the southwest coast of Hispaniola, when, wouldn't you know it, there was a lunar eclipse! Columbus marked the local time at which it began, hoping to determine his longitude. But he had no good way to compare his timing to anywhere else he knew of. He figured, probably based on some astronomical tables, that the eclipse should have begun five and a half hours earlier in Capo Vergi, which was roughly considered the prime meridian at the time. He was wrong, and the longitude he estimated for Sanoá Island put him on the west coast of Mexico, about 2,000 miles west of his actual position. Even that impressively incorrect estimate was only possible because Columbus happened to be on land when the eclipse struck. It's around the time of the so-called Age of Discovery that the longitude problem kind of bifurcates into two longitude problems, how to determine where you are on land and how to determine where you are at sea. The latter was far more important and far more difficult for most of history sailors had handled the problem of determining their bearings with a simple strategy trying to stay in sight of land whenever possible in theory determining longitude on the water had one advantage over land you could again very much in theory go straight from one destination to another which means you once more, only in theory, had a more accurate way to determine the distance between two points and therefore could use al method for determining your location. But none of that was true in practice, because as soon as a ship lost sight of shore, it was blind. The only way marine navigators had to figure out where they were was through dead reckoning. It's not clear where that term comes from. The word dead had three uses for sailors at the time. It could mean true or absolute, as in dead ahead, or it could mean still, as in dead in the water. Finally, it could mean dead, as in, if you fuck this up, Charlie, we're all dead. All three of those make equally good sense when it comes to dead reckoning. What Charlie, oh look, we have a character now, what Charlie would do was tie a log to a length of rope which had knots tied in it at regular intervals. Then he'd throw the log overboard where it would sit dead still while the ship moved dead ahead. Charlie would hold the rope and count how many knots ran through his hands over a length of time. That told Charlie, roughly, the speed the ship was sailing at. Two knots, three knots, four knots. If Charlie had a good map and knew the heading of the ship, he could mark the ship's last known location, its fix, from back when they could see land and then estimate how far they'd traveled in what direction since then. And if he got it wrong, everyone died, like on George Anson's HMS Centurion. But George and Charlie and everyone else were bound to get it wrong. Not only were their measuring devices inaccurate to begin with, but they didn't take into account currents and drift, which had to be established purely through guesswork. Well, not purely through guesswork, from the early 1300s on, Europeans had a way to roughly work out their latitude. The device was known as a four-staff, or Jacob's staff, and while it's not clear when they started being used at sea, we know that they were basically ubiquitous among sailors by the 1500s. One of the main ways we know the four-staff was popular is through one of the most popular stereotypes about sailors and pirates, the eye patch. The four staff looked like a long stick, with a ruler impaled on it. You can see an image of one being used via the Vodacast app. To take your bearings, you pointed the stick out towards the distance, stared down it, and slid the ruler part until the bottom end was resting on the horizon and the top end was touching the sun. That meant staring directly into the sun several times a day, which meant, say goodbye to your eye, Charlie pretty much any sailor who lived long enough on the water eventually lost sight in an eye this way. Thus, why your adorable and or sexy pirate costume comes with an eye patch. By the early 1600s, most of the old Jacob's staffs were being replaced by backstaffs, staffs, and quadrants, which not only did a better job of gauging latitude, but also didn't make you lose an eye. But none of that helped find longitude one little bit. The most existential issue with a ship not knowing its longitude is the one George Anson faced on the Centurion. You could get lost, get thrown against some rocks, or be stranded without supplies to die of scurvy. But even if things went perfectly well, sailing without longitude was still an issue. Say you were heading to Havana from London. Well, there are a few ways you might want to do that. Maybe you want to try to cut the shortest path a straight line. Or maybe you want to take advantage of the best winds, plotting a more complicated but speedy voyage. Without a way to determine your longitude, you couldn't do either one of those. No, you were stuck, like it or lump it, sailing south from London until you were at the correct latitude for Havana, 23 degrees north and change, and then turning west and trying to maintain that latitude all the way across the Atlantic. Not only was this massively inefficient, it was also dangerous, A longer route meant more time on the water, and more time on the water meant more risk. Not only that, but because everyone basically knew that there was only one way to get from here to there, they also knew where you were going to be sailing. If privateers or pirates were after you, they knew precisely where they had to wait. So, yeah, it was a big problem. And by the 16th century, efforts were beginning to converge on solving it. In 1567, King Philip II of Spain offered the first recorded inducement, a prize for whoever could work out a way for Spain to determine their ship's longitudes. His son, King Philip III, upped the ante in 1598, raising the reward to a lump sum of 6,000 ducats and 2,000 more each year for the rest of the winner's life. By that time, the problem wasn't hopeless, or it didn't seem like it should be, at least. By the time the Dutch threw in their own prize of 10,000 florins in 1636, there were four promising solutions in the works. The first came from Amerigo Vespucci, the Italian navigator for whom two whole continents are named, yet nobody ever talks about him pretty much at all. Isn't that baffling? He was the first European to realize that the New World, a term he coined, by the way, wasn't just islands but continents, and that, get this Columbus, they weren't Asia. But he's like a piece of obscure trivia. Everybody knows about Columbus, who, in case you haven't listened to our episode on the guy, sucked serious donkey balls. But America himself? Meh. Anyway, we can help change that a little bit, because Amerigo Vespucci's contribution to the longitude problem is a big one. On his first voyage to his new world, Vespucci suggested that he, or if not him, somebody at least, could work out his longitude by looking at the moon. The moon goes around the Earth roughly every 27 days. From the Earth, it transits about half a degree every hour. The stars, on the other hand, mostly stay still. So Vespucci figured he could use the distance between the moon and certain stars, or the sun, as a sort of lunar clock. Let's say Vespucci is up on deck in the early morning when the sun and the moon are both in the sky. With a little work, and the use of one of those staffs, he figures out how far apart they are. And he knows what time it is, locally, based on solar noon. Now, if he also knows the time at which the sun and moon are supposed to be that far apart somewhere else, say the port of Cadiz in southwest Spain, then he could work out the longitudinal difference between his ships and there. And that is exactly what Vespucci did in 1499, concluding that he was 82 degrees west of Cadiz. Which was wrong. Extremely wrong. Even more wrong than Columbus. His measurements put him, coincidentally, near the Juan Fernandez Islands that George Anson was looking for, several hundred miles off the west coast of South America. But he was actually on the north coast of Brazil, a whole continent away. His continent! Vespucci's idea was sound, but his execution was not. Not really his fault, though. See, I said that a lunar cycle is roughly 27 days, and I mean roughly. The orbit of the moon is irregular, it varies, and it's very hard to predict. Nobody knew how to do it in Vespucci's time, and nobody had a complete enough understanding of the stars either. So judging the moon's motion against the stars meant judging one thing he didn't know against another thing he didn't know. But other than that, Vespucci was right. That sounded more sarcastic than I meant. What I mean is, If Vespucci did have an accurate understanding of the moon's orbit and an accurate understanding of the background stars, then he could have determined his longitude, which meant that as soon as someone did understand those things, the longitude problem would be solved. Sounds simple enough, right? It was not, (laughs) but put a pin in that because we've got some other possible ways to sort through first. Thirty years after Amerigo Vespucci tried and embarrassingly failed with his lunar distance method, a Dutch mathematician and globe maker named Gemma Frisius detailed his own way of solving the longitude problem. Frisius was a famous and respected cartographer. He made some of the most spectacular and accurate globes of the day, along with help from his friend Mercator, who we will get back to in a minute, and was the first person to propose modern triangulation techniques for map making and surveying. Compared to Vespucci's longitude idea, Frisius's was the height of simplicity. Amerigo needed to understand the motion of the moon, the position of the stars, and he needed to know what they both were in two places at once. Frisius only needed to know the time. Since each solar hour represented 15 degrees of longitude, Frisius figured that all a sailor needed to work out to find their position was their local time. Let's take this back to you and me, lost in the wilderness. You already did all that busy work to find us our latitude, which included determining our local solar noon, right? Okay, well, that's that then. All you need to do is wait for high noon and then cross-reference that with the time in some known location. Let's say Columbus, Ohio. If it's one o'clock in Columbus and high noon where we are, then ta-da, we are 15 degrees west of Columbus. How simple is that? Not as much as it appears, actually. Because how are you supposed to know what time it is in Columbus when we're lost out in the wilderness, or sailing the Atlantic Ocean, for that matter? Gemma had an answer. Bring a clock. Just bring a clock set to the local time of wherever you're sailing from. Then, anytime you want, you can cross-check your local solar time against the clock, and bingo, instant longitude. But there was a problem with Frisch's idea, too. To make it work, you needed a very accurate clock. Far more accurate than any that existed at the time. But it didn't just have to be accurate the way a household clock should be. It also needed to remain accurate for long periods of time, even when being wound on a rocking ship through all kinds of wet and weather, cold and heat, for months at a time. Each and every individual element of that sentence represented a distinct and difficult hill to climb, which we will also get back to. First, let's return to our buddy, and Frischus is too, Gerardus Mercator. In addition to being the maker of the most famous map of all time, the Mercator projection map you had in your classroom, Mercator was also a philosopher, a mathematician, a historian, an engraver, an inventor, a theologian. Dude got around. He also had his own method for determining longitude, which relates to one of the other times we've talked about him on this show. Maybe in the Cold Hard Truth series? I'm honestly not sure. No matter, I'll recap it now. On Mercator's famous 1569 world map, he wrote an argument into the legend that navigators should make Capu Vergi the prime meridian, which, as mentioned, many, including Columbus, already did. But Mercator's logic was different from Columbus's. Sailors, like Columbus, thought Capuvergi was a good prime meridian because it was an island system that most of them had to visit, whether they were traveling west to the Americas or south around Africa. It was a shared, common navigating point. Mercator didn't care about that. Instead, he thought Capuvergi made a great prime meridian because he thought that directly north of Capuvergi, wait, Way north, like the North Pole, there was a gigantic metal mountain. As he wrote to John Dee, the royal advisor, astronomer, and weirdest of all weirdos. Oh boy, we're gonna have to talk about him someday too, aren't we? Anyway, in 1577, Mercator sent Dee a letter, the pertinent part of which reads, Right under the pole, there lies a bare rock in the midst of the sea. Its circumference is almost 33 French miles, and it is all of magnetic stone. Mercator got this idea from a book entitled The Discovery of Fortunata by way of a travel log by Dutch author Jacobus Canoyen, who summarized the discovery of Fortunata in his own book, Eternarium. Neither of those books survive, and only Mercator's summary of the summary to John Dee remains. But for Mercator, the giant magnetic stone at the top of the world made perfect sense it must be the thing that compasses point to. And, as Mercator understood it, the monstrous metallic mountain was on the same longitude as Capu Vergi. This was the key to Mercator's longitude method. Magnetic north was not the same as true north. A sailor could determine, here's that word again, roughly where true north was based on the position of Polaris, the north star. Provided it was night, and the sky was clear, and they were in the northern hemisphere. And they could determine magnetic north via a compass. Then they only needed to figure the perceived difference between the two, along with their latitude, and, simple as syrup, you got your longitude going. Except, you guessed it, not so simple at all. Look at the bright side. Before 1499, there were no good ideas for figuring out longitude. And then, by 1577, there were three. Vespucci's lunar positioning, Frisius's clock sinking, and Mercator's magnetic declination. And sure, none of them actually worked yet, but each of them appeared promising. And that was before 1612, when Galileo Galilei got in on the act. There isn't much to be said with confidence about Jacob Metius other than that he worked with glass. By the end of the 13th century, glassmakers in Venice were grinding and polishing glass into magnifying glasses, mostly for the nearsighted to read by. Philosophers and leaders of the day weren't convinced that one could trust what they saw in the glass. It seemed like the glass could be working by some form of trickery that only seemed to be magnification. But by 1350... They'd gotten the idea to make the glass beads smaller and suspend them in front of the eyes of the user. Since the little round glasses looked a bit like legumes, people started calling them lentils, which in Latin read lenses. It's probably this type of lens that Jacob Metius made a living grinding in Alkmaar in North Holland. And then, in 1608, he did something different. He ground out two lenses— one convex, one concave, and set them at either end of a tube. When he looked through the concave side, the world before him grew larger and closer. Everything was magnified three or four times. The device made his vision so strong that he could count out individual coins from down the street. I know what you're thinking, that Jacob Metius had invented the telescope, That's just what Jacob Metius was thinking, too. So, he applied to the States General of the Netherlands for a patent on his new invention, to which the States General said, Wow, that's amazing! I know, I know, replied Medias. You can even see how many fingers someone is holding up from all the way across a field. No, 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 not that, said the States General. What's amazing is that another guy came around asking for a patent on the same exact thing two weeks ago. Hans Lipperhey was a glass grinder and spectacle maker in Middelburg in the southwest of the Netherlands. There isn't much to be said with confidence about Hans Lipperhey, other than that he, too, invented, or claimed to have invented, the telescope, just a handful of days before Jacob Metius, Which really, really sucked for Jacob. He withdrew his claim and hid his telescope away. In his will, he demanded that all of his telescopes and the tools he used to make them and the drawings he had made of them be destroyed. But it sucked for Hans, too, because now the state's general, who'd been impressed by his application for an instrument for, quote, seeing things far away as if they were nearby, were now less so. The telescope itself was incredible, there was no question about that. But was Hans Lipperheil so special? After all... Jacob Metius had come up with the same idea at approximately the same time. And according to another Dutch guy, his dad had also made one even earlier than Hans. The state's general decided that while the telescope was wonderful, and Hans Liberhae had probably made the first one, the idea itself didn't belong to him. And so he wasn't given a patent either. The telescope belonged to anyone who could build one. And that was soon to be a lot of people. Lipperheil's patent application wasn't approved, but it did find its way into Dutch diplomatic papers, which spread almost instantly, not just around the Netherlands, not just around Europe, but anywhere the Dutch had colonies, embassies, or explorers, which was pretty much everywhere, from Siam to New York. If you're feeling bad for Hans Lipperhey, there are a couple of silver linings. For one, while the Dutch government didn't give him the patent, they did buy his telescope and commissioned him to build several more for which he was paid handsomely. So, it wasn't a total wash, like it was for Medeus. The real upshot, though, is that if Lipperhey hadn't filed his patent and been denied and had his application published in diplomatic letters, which spread to the public, then the telescope might not have gotten to its most critical user, Galileo. Galileo was already looking up when he read about Liberheil's telescope. In 1604, he was teaching math in Venice, when a new star seemed to suddenly appear in the sky. This was, most astronomers of the time believed, impossible. The heavens were permanent, static and fixed, never changing, they believed, because fucking Aristotle had said so. So, most figured, this new star must not be a star at all, but some sort of near-sky phenomenon. Two months into this new star's existence, its brightness was waning, which seemed to give some credence to the idea that it wasn't really a star at all, but Galileo wasn't so sure. By coincidence, although good luck convincing the people of that at the time, Jupiter had recently aligned with Saturn, and then backed up and ran into Saturn again, and then backed up and ran into Saturn again, and then, right before the Nova, it had aligned with Mars. Imagine what people would be blaming on that via Twitter today. At the time, it seemed like, between these alignments and the Nova, the heavens were trying to tell us something big was on the way. Galileo didn't know what that was, but he did suspect that the new star was the result of these alignments. The child of a funky, interplanetary gangbang. Yeah, not great, but by observing the new astrological orgy baby, Galileo realized something. It didn't move there was no sign of parallax from earth meaning that wherever the star was it wasn't in our atmosphere and it wasn't between here and the moon or even between here and the planets it had to be far far away in the heavens which ipso facto were mutable changing impermanent aristotle this is going to shock you had been wrong i know Galileo got word of Liberhe’s telescope plans almost as soon as they went out, and within a year he'd built three telescopes of his own, one that had a magnification of 3, a second with an improved magnification of 8, and then a third with a magnification of 30. Galileo was the first person to turn that telescope skywards, probably because he was the first person to build one worth looking that way. At the end of November, 1609, he took a look at the moon and figured out that it wasn't a perfect translucent sphere, as fucking Aristotle had said, but a cratered mountainous rock. Then came the real shocker. On January 7th, 1610, less than a month after demystifying the moon, Galileo took a look at Jupiter. And around Jupiter. At first, he thought he had sighted some small stars that were invisible to the naked eye because of their closeness to the planet. But after a few more nights of watching them, he realized that they were moving. When he set up his telescope on the night of January 10th, one of the stars was missing, which he realized was because it was now behind Jupiter. They weren't stars. They were moons. This was yet another arrow to the knee of Aristotle, whose physics dictated that all heavenly bodies should orbit the Earth. Galileo's moons proved Aristotle wrong for a third time in just six years. This revelation opened up the possibility that Earth might orbit the sun, as opposed to the other way around, which, you might have heard, got Galileo into a spot of trouble with the old Catholic Church later on. And it also supplied a new possible solution to the longitude problem. By 1612, Galileo had identified four moons of Jupiter, and he wasn't the only one. Simon Marius had seen them too, and named them Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. Christopher Clavius, one of the people in charge of the Gregorian calendar, had confirmed that they orbited Jupiter, and so had Johann Kepler, the greatest astronomer of the time. For a few more minutes. Kepler realized that the moons must have some sort of periodicity, some kind of pattern. But after observing them for a while, he concluded that it was too complicated for anyone to work out. Galileo already had. Ooh, hope you enjoyed it while you had the chance, Kepler. Galileo found predicting the movements of Jupiter's moons very simple. Actually, they regularly were eclipsed by the planet or became spots on top of it. Galileo called their movements... A celestial clock, precise and certain enough to set a watch by, or to find your longitude with. Galileo's was a very elegant proposal. If you just wrote up a chart comparing the local time in a given place, Capu Vergi, let's continue to say, with the movements of Jupiter's moons, then all you had to do was look up at Jupiter through a telescope and you could know the time in Capu Vergi. And if you knew the time in Capu Vergi and you knew the time where you were, you could tell how far east or west you were. And what's more, it worked. It worked very, very well. In the coming decades, astronomers and surveyors would use Galileo's celestial clock to more finely fix the locations of cities around Europe and the Middle East and to help build accurate topographical maps of whole countries. Galileo submitted his method, to king philip iii and awaited his ducats king philip was not impressed let me get this straight said phil you're telling me that you can figure out where you are yeah by jupiter's moons uh-huh through a telescope that's right on a ship uh yeah a rolling ocean-bound motherfucking sailing ship Well, hmm, answered Galileo. Pointing a telescope at Jupiter is a fine enough thing to do on land, provided no one's blowing on your ear as they always are, but how are you supposed to do that on a boat, being tossed on the water? Galileo hadn't thought about that part. Eventually, he conceived of a new invention, the seletone, which was basically a helmet with a telescope sticking out from one of the eyes. You can see a picture of a seletone via the Vodacast app now. What are we supposed to do with this? Screamed an exasperated King Philip. Look at Jupiter, Galileo answered sheepishly. It's like... I'm not even sure you understand the problem. Galileo spent 16 years trying to convince Spain to give him the prize, but he was never able to actually meet the conditions. His way worked superbly on land, but on land wasn't the issue. What was needed was a way to establish longitude at sea, and Galileo, despite his every argument and augmentation, couldn't make it happen. In 1636, Holland put forth its own prize, 10,000 florins for, quote, the inventor of a reliable method of finding the longitude at sea. So, Galileo turned to the state's general, who had turned down the telescope patent that had made his technique possible. Holland was far less skeptical of Galileo than Spain had been, and seemed like they might have been willing to fund his latest fix. Galileo thought that maybe he could build a platform that floated on a bed of oil, keeping it stationary no matter the waves, like a hydraulic gimbal. Maybe it would have worked. But by that time, Galileo was under house arrest for saying that the earth went around the sun. And the Inquisition kept the Dutch investigators from being able to visit or write him. Then Galileo died, and the states general gave up. No one would claim the Spanish prize, or the other Spanish prize, or the Dutch prize, or the French prize, which was set up around the same time. There were all these methods that were so close to working. If we just knew more about the moon, if we just had a steady telescope, if we just had a better clock or a better compass, we could do it. But none of those things existed. And it would take another prize, the biggest yet, to finally solve the most difficult problem in human history. That's next time on Long Story Short, Part 2. Yes, I know, it's meant to be ironic. Music for today's episode provided by Lee Rose Veer, Blue Dot Sessions, and Epidemic Sound. In the coming week, I'm going to be dropping a bonus episode about the fate of the HMS Wager, the ship in Anson's fleet that wrecked in South America. Let me tell you, it is a wild tale. The way to hear it is to go to patreon.com slash the constant and sign up to help support the making of this show. Or else you could pirate it, I guess. Hey, did you know we sell shirts and stuff? It's true. Mugs and stickers and phone cases, and I don't even know what, but you can find our merch store via our website, constantpodcast.com, or through the show notes, which say, buy our merch, you filthy animals. Answer the call. We're a part of Hub & Spoke Audio Collective home to the world's first and longest-running podcast, Open Source, a show about arts, ideas, and politics. In the latest episode, host Christopher Leiden talks about the tragic architect of the World Trade Center, Minoru Yamasaki. Listen at radioopensource.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, from 41.8 degrees north, 87.6 degrees west, this has been The Constant. Half of the quote-unquote soldiers had started off bedridden. 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 It's not a word anymore. It stopped being a word. Bedridden. Riding the bed. To have ridden the bed.